You're listening to Conversations in Atlantic Theory, a podcast dedicated to books and ideas generated from and about the Atlantic world. In collaboration with the Journal of French and Francophone Philosophy, these conversations explore the cultural, political, and philosophical traditions of the Atlantic world, ranging from European critical theory to the Black Atlantic, to sites of indigenous resistance and self-articulation, as well as the complex geography of thinking between traditions, inside traditions, and from positions of insurgency, critique, and counter-narrative. Today's discussion is with Martin Schuster, who teaches in the Department of Philosophy at Goucher College in Baltimore, Maryland, where he also directs the Center for Geographies of Justice. He is the author of numerous articles in European and Jewish philosophy, cultural studies, and phenomenology, as well as three authored books, 2014's Autonomy After Auschwitz, Adorno, German Idealism and Modernity, published by University of Chicago Press, New Television, The Aesthetics and Politics of a Genre, published in 2017 by University of Chicago Press, and the book we are discussing today, How to Measure a World, a Philosophy of Judaism, out with Indiana University Press in late 2021. Martin, hello, how are you? Hey, John. Good, how are you? Good. It's great to, to uh, have a chance to talk to you today. Um, I really loved your new book, How to Measure a World, and I'm really glad that you made the time to talk about it. I think it's a, a really exciting contribution to a lot of things that we'll talk to, uh, talk about today, um, and I think is a really fantastic way of rethinking some of the basics about what it is we do that we call philosophy. Um, and I have to say too, uh, it's really well written. It was a oh, real well, pleasure you. to read. Yeah. Don't often Thanks say that so about much, philosophy John. books. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate it. It's really nice to be here and I'm looking forward to the conversation. Well, I want to start with, uh, to ask you about the origins of the project and the origins of the project question is really you know, an invitation for you to, to, to you to narrate us into the project as, as you wish, right? Whether it's a set of personal concerns, obviously there are deep ethical and philosophical concerns that drew you to the questions that make this book happen and make it work and make it uh, what it is. And I always find this an interesting question because I think people's intellectual journeys are, are into books and out of books are really interesting in and of themselves, especially because of the intensity of commitment it takes to write a book. This is a, a full life commitment to write <laughs> these pages. It's painful, it's joyous, and everything in between. So, you know, what brought you to the project? What drew you in? What motivated it? Yeah, it's a it's a it's a great question, uh, uh, and I feel like there's probably with with all of these sort of academic projects, there's sort of personal reasons, and then there's I guess like what you might call professional or scholarly or academic reasons. And I think it's a mixture of both. So, I mean, this is the sort of the topic of this book. I mean, roughly Judaism very broadly conceived is something that I've been thinking about for a long time. And that's probably been important to me my, my whole life in one way or another. Um, I mean, something that I, I don't think, you know, and I'm, I'm certain probably whoever's listening doesn't know either i was actually born in the soviet union so i came here when i was seven as a as essentially a refugee um and so my parents had been refuseniks and had experienced okay. a lot of anti-semitism and so obviously this was something that judaism was always at the forefront of my mind in various ways so that's the sort of biographical piece uh -huh. and then um the sort of uh 
scholarly portion of it is that um, I, I got a, a grant um, that I was the co-principal investigator on uh, on a grant with a, a colleague um, named Aaron Simmons, who works in, in sort of Christian philosophy of religion. Sure. And we had gotten a grant to do inter-religious uh, understanding. So it was a sub-grant from the Templeton Foundation that was um, part of uh, Stephen Grimm, who's a, a philosopher at Fordham, had a mm -hmm. giant grant, like one of these multi-million grants, multi-million dollar grants on um, varieties of understanding. And we were a sub-grant within that on inter-religious understanding. And the sort of the way that we approached it was to try to do interreligious dialogue by focusing on different traditions of apophatic theology or negative theology. So uh -huh. uh, finding five different traditions. So the traditions were Judaism, Christianity, Islam, and then Hinduism and Buddhism that uh -huh. all conceived of ultimate reality in negative terms as sort of what the things you can't say about ultimate reality. And so that's uh -huh. where this project sort of started. And the very first chapter I wrote was the Adorno chapter. That was uh, really um, an attempt to think about negative theology in a, in a different way. So to use somebody who most people would consider a secular thinker in many uh -huh. ways and somebody who you don't associate with. Uh, obviously, he invokes religious images in various ways, but is not a religious thinker in, in any uh -huh. sense of that term, I think. And um, and as we were working together, that's the chapter that emerged. And then we had different ideas about, you know, these, it was a year long grant and we had different ideas about how to unpack sort of what we were doing and the best way to do it. We had this very odd experience. We, uh, I organized a giant sort of um, town hall on religious understanding in Kansas City that uh, had like hundreds of people there. And it was a remarkable event that we wow. all sort of really enjoyed in various ways. Um, Philosophers sponsoring an event with hundreds of people. This is, yeah, exactly. <laughs> this it, was, amazing. it was really amazing. Yeah. But it's like anytime you invoke religion, then people come out of the woodworks, gotcha. especially yeah. uh, <laughs> for something like this. And Kansas City also has a, a long sort of history and tradition of, of this sort of stuff. And mm -hmm. um, and then we we began to reframe it. So at first we, we thought to publish a sort of edited um uh, like a, almost like an edited collection with the five of us. Um, so there were five people on this project in total that would have us like be responding to each other in different ways. And so that's when I wrote the the chapter on Maimonides um, was sort of to, to do something that fit a little more neatly into invoking a traditional religious thinker, but also pursuing the same sort of themes around mm -hmm. apophatic theology um, and phenomenology in certain ways. And um and then the projects just sort of fell apart because we, we realized that having five people involved in one book is just not going to work. And I sort of shelved it for a little bit. Uh -huh. um, and then, uh, you know, this stuff was sort of percolating and I ended up, uh, I teach philosophy of religion regularly here. And, and I'm the sort of person where my, my teaching influences what I write a lot of times. And so I, I had these very interesting Same. discussions with students and, uh, and I was like, well, wait a second, there's, there's something here. And then I ended up teaching a, another class here called um, Judaism and Political Theology. That was like a essentially a class that I built around Benjamin in many ways because I wanted to read yeah. Benjamin more seriously. And the students were really excited about it. And um, and then I just wrote the the rest of the chapters essentially. Um, and the the whole thing came together as a book. And I realized that there were all these common themes that had to be put together. Um, so that's the sort of academic scholarly part of it. And then where the two come together was I had just been seriously thinking about um, Judaism because of personal reasons and because of these academic reasons and because of everything that's going on right now. So um, 
both with anti-Semitism, but also with Israel and also just with Jewish religiosity and, and, and mm -hmm. things in the community. And, and so, you know, I knew that I had a particular conception of Judaism, but I hadn't quite worked it out. And, you know, as academics, the sort of first thing you want to do is like somehow work it out conceptually. And so sure. that's really how the book originated is like an amalgamation of, of these sort of three things. Um, and in many ways, I view it as, as, as one of my most personal books in that sense, because it really, mm -hmm. it really just grew out of this. It's just something that's very personal to me in a way that, you know, I, I wrote one book on television um, that, that was also personal in a way because, you know, nobody, nobody in philosophy was taking television very seriously. And so it was, uh -huh. yeah. <laughs> it was personal in that sense that it was risky, but it wasn't personal in the same way. <laughs> yeah. No, that's a, I'm glad I asked this. I, that's a, a fantastic way to understand the process. And, and also it's interesting about how, um, you know, growing out of a, of a project that didn't quite come together. Right. But then got rehabilitated in the classroom. I love that. I mean, I think that, you know, the sort of trope about I learn from my students or they teach me as much as I teach them is, you know, may periodically be true, but is more of a platitude. And then there are people who are like, you know, teaching is what I do in order to do my research. But I really love that, you know, I live in that spot, the sweet spot. I think it's a sweet spot that you articulated, which is I work out my ideas with my students. They love it. The idea that you're exploring with them, but also the questions they ask and the demands for clarity that they have. Because I, you know, I think when I was listening to you talk about that part, I was like, well, that's probably no small part of why the book is really well written. Is that oh, way that, that you have those demands from students that make you write differently and think clearly in different ways. I, I agree completely. And I think that you're exactly right that I think it's, it's a lot of times it's a platitude that we learn from our students. I mean, but I think in this sense where you're forced to both frame whatever you're interested in, in a way that is palpable to somebody who's not an expert, but also then respond to that framing in a way that's, you know, cogent and understandable yeah. for them. Yeah. I think that's absolutely right. And uh, I, I found that incredibly useful in, in all my writing projects. I mean, if you can explain Adorno to an undergraduate who's never read, you know, Contra Hegel, then I think you, you yeah. probably <laughs> understand whatever you're talking about pretty well. Yeah. I had a similar thing just to, as a side note. I had drafted my Glissant in the Middle Passage book, uh, fully drafted it. And, um, you know, everybody was like, so are you sending it off to the publisher? And I was like, no, I want to teach a class on Glissant. Explain Glissant to people who basically walk into that classroom doing the reading, wondering what the fuck they just read. And I got to get them back on the ground. And then I went and reread the, or rewrote the text. And it just was so much better because I, you know, you get out of, of that scholarly moment. I mean, Glissant is, you know, a fraction as difficult to read and write about as Adorno. But, you know, I think that's a place, especially I think where it shows up in the book with your, your clarity about Adorno. And that is just not a phrase that we hear very often. And right, I think well, that's, you know, I mean, he himself was not, you know, right. trying to hide from his difficulty. Well, um, in, in, in a way, in, he, in he, he would be, he would find it, you know, he would be averse to, to having that sort of clarity in some ways. But I think this is where, <laughs> you know, it's okay to push back against uh, some of the thinkers that we read. But, uh, but no, I, 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 I'm doing something very similar. So I'm, I'm working on a project now uh, called Genocide in the State. And it's the same thing. Like I have a draft of it, but I actually... 
there's a class that I teach regularly called Ethics After Auschwitz here that I also, again, I wanted to teach. And I actually shared, uh, you know, a few drafts with them. And um, oh, one thing I've started thinking about that I'm curious if you've thought about is is writing for like a trade press or, or writing for a more popular audience. Is that something you ever thought about? I think about that sometimes. I have a couple of, of ideas of projects um, around truth and reconciliation in the Americas. And um, just be blunt and honest, uh, I find that intimidating. Yeah, it's very intimidating. <laughs> you know, um, but it's something I would love to do. I mean, it's, it's you know, I'd never have fashioned myself uh, a public intellectual, and I don't think my interests lend themselves to that. But that's different than a trade press and, and that sense of, uh, of transcending our narrower academic audiences. Right. Um, it's something I found myself thinking a lot about because I, I wonder, for example, if my TV book might have might have been a lot more successful as a as something that had been written with that in mind. And yeah, I think uh, it's something I definitely want to try my hand at. I haven't quite worked up the courage. It seems like you have to get agents, and there's some skills that I need to develop that we weren't quite taught as academics. I think. That's for sure. I do love the idea of saying I have an agent, but you, know, right. you have to act on that. You can't just say, well, I have my agent. <laughs> well, let me ask you about the title of this book. Um, it's a fairly straightforward title in some ways, but I'm someone who thinks probably uh, you know too much about titles. Um, but I think they're a window, obviously, they're a window into the book. They're not just marketing. Um, sometimes they are just marketing, but um, they're also a window into the book. And there were a couple of things I wanted to ask you about in your title. Um, and feel free to say this is an overread of the title, or <laughs> hopefully um, I'm onto something. You know, the title is How to Measure a World. And I found that an interesting way of phrasing it because it doesn't say how to measure the world. And I wondered about that difference between talking about a world and the world. Um, I know that you know one of the backgrounds we share and sort of commitments we share as thinkers is to phenomenology. And so this seems phenomenologically really significant. And I wondered if there's also anything at stake in the of, in the subtitle, the philosophy of Judaism. It's not philosophy and Judaism. It's not philosophy in Judaism. It's philosophy of. So I wonder, just in some ways, asking you about those two words, a instead of the, and of instead of and or in. Yeah, if, no, it's, a, know, it's a great question, John. Um, and I, I don't think it's overanalyzing, but but I also have the same proclivity that you do to, <laughs> to really uh, examine titles in these ways. And um, <laughs> yeah. I think uh, both were very much intentional. Um, and the former, I think, is easier to address than the latter in some ways or... or or at least is more pleasant for me because um, I think I very much wanted to have a world rather than the world. I mean, on one hand, A, because I think it sounds better and catchier, but B, because there's a serious intellectual commitment here in that yeah. um, I think the world has an implication of, of a lack of contingency that I, I think, you know, the book really mm -hmm. aims to undermine in many ways. And so um really a world i think is much more apt because uh it's it's an open question what what world we're talking about exactly Absolutely. and i think that's a central feature of the book and then the philosophy of judaism is something that i, I actually um 
I had a lot of qualms about because I'm sure you've had this experience, you know, anytime you tell people you're a philosopher in any sort of like public setting on an airplane or something, they're like, oh, well, what's your philosophy? And it's like, ah, like that's the, the worst possible question ever. I mean, only, only, yeah. uh, only better than, uh, you know, does a tree make a sound in the forest when there's nobody there to hear it or whatever. But, uh, and so I was very hesitant actually to have, you know, philosophy of something because that's not how I like to invoke philosophy. But in this case, I honestly couldn't think of a better way to do it because really a central feature of the book is to try to unpack Judaism as a sort of philosophical, phenomenological stance within the world. Um, uh-huh. And then I think that um, there was no other way to to really present that. And um, and I think in that sense, like, you know, there's a strong, serious, uh, you know, commitment behind that, but also intuitively, I think it would make sense to the average reader. Like that's what you're trying to do. And so, Mm-hmm. Um, I, I really very much hope that this book would be picked up by not just academics, but I was hoping like, you know, rabbis and, and people who are genuinely interested in, in thinking about mm-hmm. Judaism in, in, in a different way. And that was part of the reason why I wrote it sort of the way that I did in a hopefully mm-hmm. more accessible fashion. Yeah, no, I think that's, uh, that's fantastic. And, and I do think, you know, you say rabbis, but I think anyone who's interested in the, um, what you said, you know, the contingency of worlds and our stance in the world, right? And, and I mean, it's deeply a question, or it's, it's deeply a book about philosophy of Judaism. But it is also, I think, I mean, this is one of the things I really took from it, a book about what it means to have that contingent stance in the world, right? And takes that very seriously and indulges yeah, absolutely. it rather than the world, which would try to neutralize that. And in that way, I, I really like that your phenomenological practice in the book resists that sort of, you know, eidetic moment of, of pulling away from a world in order to draw sort of, not sort of, to draw an essential structure of the world. And I just think in the 21st century, that's just the, the notion of a world and sort of exploring the complexities and contingencies therein is just a much more responsible way of doing philosophy because it allows yeah. you to, to fully indulge in this case, you know, what you gather from, from the Judaic tradition and it's, yeah, I, I agree. Dimension. And I think also there's a strong phenomenological point there that, that people like Lisa Gunther have, have teased out with this idea of a critical phenomenology. And, and uh, yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Yeah. No, I, I yeah. The critical phenomenology is, I, I like that as a, one of the horizons uh, in which you could situate your book for sure. So in terms of, of sort of the philosophical, structure of the book one of the things that really um caught me uh caught my eye as a reader and of course is you know, central to your own exposition and, and and uh structure of the book um is this sort of description of these competing frames if you want to put it that way of outrage and awe i just think that produces such amazing insights you know awe and outrage as different ways of getting into philosophy and a way of understanding what it would mean to measure a world because those are two very different dispositions but they also produce rich insights so i'm curious to have you talk a little bit about obviously the book is the content of this but to hear you talk about you know why this distinction and what for you is at stake in it yeah, it's a it's a great question. It's a tough question, and and it's also one that, in a way, makes me uncomfortable in the sense that I'm someone who, 
usually, I mean, despite working on so many sort of dialectical thinkers, like I'm always suspicious anytime it's just like a dualism, it's this and this. And so um, one way that I, I would possibly try to frame this is it's less a sort of binary and more, I would say, a sort of um, almost like a, a scale. So I, I imagine these are sort of two limit points, but obviously they're, and yeah. they're connected in a certain way phenomenologically, because I think both of them, um, they point beyond the world in a certain way. So when you, when you have a mm-hmm. sort of awe towards something, you're in awe of it. And it's as if like, you know, it's overflowing sort of whatever conceptual capacities you're bringing to bear to it at the moment. And I think outrage is the sort of flip side there because mm-hmm. it's the same sort of thing. You're uh, some sort some sort of suffering is producing a picture of, of how the world ought to be different somehow. Um, and yeah. so there, I view them as two sides of the same coin, but obviously there's a lot of ground in between the two. And so they're sort of like limit cases in, in a lot of ways, but um but I think, yeah, I, I found them very productive for just thinking about, I mean, A, again, Judaism, but B, also just thinking about at the most sort of primordial level, like you said, the sort of stance that we take towards the world, um, why we sort of do philosophy. And mm-hmm. it's not by accident, I think, that that the sort of, you know, the philosophical tradition in various ways and their different formulations of this but in ancient greece it was very common to associate it with wonder in certain ways mm-hmm. um, and then same thing i think it, it was also very common to associate it with outrage in, in various ways and yeah. uh, both for better and for worse um, on both of those and so uh, there is something i think deeply sort of primordial about this stance that i think underwrites so many other positions in, in the philosophical world in various ways um, that I think is just phenomenologically very rich. And again, it's something that I think uh, when you talk to undergraduates, when you talk to people that are interested in any sort of uh, practice, whether spiritual or political or whatever the case might be, um, it's usually one of the, one of the entry points that they're, Mm -hmm. they're sort of hearkening towards uh, in one way or another. And I think, you know, I mean, for me as a, you know, a fellow uh, philosopher, it really helped me organize a lot of a, a lot of things. I mean, they, you know, as you say, limit points rather than uh, dualism. I, I'm glad you put it that way because I, I think that's a really important way of calibrating the distinction. But it's also a way of understanding how, you know, obviously your book has a specific focus on the Judaic tradition, but it's also for me a really important organizing principle for understanding. I, mean, I think sort of philosophical uh, narratives generally, but the story, the philosophical stories of oppressed peoples, right? Who aren't just outrage and abject, right? But also create worlds that have sublime beauty in them. Right? Yeah. And it's you essential. Know? And I mean, I think, uh, you know, this is like one of the central insights that I draw from like someone like Fanon. I mean, it's, it's not enough just to have one or the other. And I think, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, absolutely. I think it's exactly right. I mean, I think about, you know, my, you know, it's the go-to example. If you, if you work at all in African-American studies, it's sort of embarrassing to invoke Du Bois over and over. Mm-hmm. But I think of a, a text like Souls of Black Folk. And after reading your book, I was like, I think this outrage and awe is sort of the limit sides, limit points of that text in the way that text is both the generator of and a reflector of its preceding intellectual tradition in the Black uh, Americas. 
right? It's exactly, I think that's exactly that, right. Yeah. It's like you and have I the outrage. Uh, of, yeah. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> no, you just have the outrage of double consciousness, but you also have the beauty of and awe of the spirituals, right? And everything yeah, in between about transcendence and about outrage and resistance, and thinking those things at once is is I think so essential, so that we don't reproduce. You know, in books that study at least some in, in some aspect, uh, traditions of oppressed, marginalized, and even you know genocidal victim uh, groups, right? It's important to not simply see them and articulate them through the eyes of their oppressor, which is always the risk of outrage. But understand also the humanity that exists alongside that, and that's that moment of awe. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I think it's also cuts the other way in the sense that. Uh, sort of uh, traditions that focus just too much on awe and sort of leave out the the outrage. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a way to situate so many of the critiques of the Western canon as it sort of has been established up until I would say very recently in many ways. Yeah. No, I, I really like that. I think it's, it's, you know, every book has a specific focus and then, but every book that's a good book has these things that produce and overflow the book, right? <laughs> and produce other kinds of connections and insights. And I think this is a particularly uh, rich, uh, rich one, especially because it is rooted in in text. It's rooted in a, in a tradition, and so you're working at a level of concretion and, and phenomenological, um, you know, intensity, so that we can draw, you know, readers can draw what 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 we want out of a rich analysis rather than a series of of you know, platitudes about, about the, these limit points. And so, you know, in that way, uh, it's a specific book, but it's also a, a book that overflows itself. You know, oh, well, and, that's great. And I'm, I, I'm happy to hear that. Thank you. And when I think about, you know, this, you know, speaking of this sort of the concreteness and the anchors that the book has, this was another thing that was really interesting to me about the book, you know, it's the philosophy of Judaism. And when I saw that as the subtitle, I did have this moment where I, you know, I thought, is this going to be sort of, you know, Fackenheim, Levinas, Benjamin, you know, maybe one or two other thinkers, you know, I just do a sort of associative uh, moment because we share training in, in European philosophy. But your collection of thinkers is so interesting to me because you have uh, Maimonides, right, 12th century, who died in Egypt right? Uh, you know, Sephardic Jew dies in Egypt, uh, works in Spain. Adorno and Benjamin, whose experience, you know, was deeply pessimistic between the wars and, and post-World War II, post-Shoah, um, you know, thinking after Auschwitz. Then you have Levinas, who wrote in France, but was Lithuanian, and just as kind of an odd affect generally, is kind of un unprecedented in some ways. And then Cavell, who's a Harvard professor, is a transcendentalist. And so this collage of thinkers on first glance, right, is like, you know, it's like, why these, you know? <laughs> why 12th century Sephardic Jew and 21st century transcendentalist and all of these people in between who have very different affects, very different philosophical methods, very different concerns, that the book works, so my question is, how do you make this collage of thinkers that are also about a collage of times, a collage of geographies, and therefore all those richness, all that richness of experience that that spreads out rather than consolidates? 
you know, how do you make that collage work in the book? Right? Is this an effect of, of phenomenology? Is it something about Judaic thought that allows a thread to be pulled between them, or maybe something else? Yeah, it's a great question, and it's something that obviously was in in the back of my mind as I worked on it because, like you said, these are not thinkers that um, <laughs> that the the particular sort of scholars that work on each of these figures oftentimes don't don't necessarily work on the others, or it might be even suspicious of them in certain ways, and um, and it's also not immediately obvious how they could work together necessarily. And I think here, I think you're exactly right that the the phenomenological strand of sort of thinking about this notion of of world and worldhood is the thing that I try to weave throughout and and really gives it a sort of what I hope is a coherence. Um, and it's interesting. I mean, you know, as as you write a book, when looking back on it, I've I've since like uh, if I was writing this book again, I would add Philo. I think as 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 another interlocutor because I've since then discovered that he, that he has so many strong themes that connect to, to this in certain ways. See, um, it would have taken me years to guess Philo, but this, I love that. <laughs> if you were to just ask me who would the next thinker be if I was to add a chapter, right. I would not have arrived at Philo. So anyway, uh, <laughs> I love that. Well, it's, uh, it's striking. I've read, um, I've read this book recently uh, by uh, Susan Buck Morris called Year One, A Philosophical Recounting, which is a really wild book. I mean, it's, it's just a book huh. about sort of the intertestamental period. And she just really blew my mind. She, and she has like an extensive chapter on Philo. And uh, it was like, uh, you know, I had taught Philo before, but I never thought too seriously about him. And, uh, mm -hmm. and reading that chapter just sort of blew my mind because I realized there's so many deep connections. Um, so, but that's neither here nor there. I mean, I think the, the big worry for, for the book was always that, you know, whoever works on these particular figures would be very suspicious and then uh, wouldn't feel comfortable. And so it was, it was one, it was really important for me to work and to make sure that I could work in all the original sort of languages and sources and then mm -hmm. do the philological stuff in a way that those people could feel at home in it, but then would almost be forced <laughs> to realize that there are these deeper connections to these uh, other thinkers. Uh -huh. And so uh, I know that sounds sort of instrumental in a way, but it was somehow that was something that was very important to me. And I really wanted to, to be able to do that so that, um, like I said, in a way, like uh, these connections couldn't be denied because the big risk in putting these figures together is to have somebody just come along and say, well, what, what, is, what do they have to do with each other? And, yeah. uh, and then I, I didn't want to get bogged down. Like, obviously I make this move and say, look, like, you know, every tradition decides that certain things are in or out. Like it could be the most orthodox tradition it might not be explicit mm -hmm. about that, but it's making that move. But sure. I did not want to get into a whole discussion of that sort of methodology in this book because there was already so many other methodological sort of issues around phenomenology that I had to bring up in certain ways. And so I didn't want to uh -huh. get bogged down in that. And the way I sort of worked around that was, again, trying to be very competent in, on, on the sort of philological grounds and the secondary sources. But once I think you, you take that stuff seriously, at least to me, it seems obvious that there are these deep connections uh, around mm -hmm. this phenomenological sort of point. And, um, and I think that each thinker adds sort of a different dimension to it and that it, it really looks like a sort of constellation in the sense. So it's not, um, it's not purely linear. It's more a, a sort of almost like a, a three-dimensional object that each sort of chapter tries to add mm -hmm. like some depth to this idea of, 
viewing Judaism as a sort of anachronism. Um, so something that just stands out from the world temporally wow. at every moment. Um, and I think that's that's really the the locus. And uh, uh, it was important for me to have somebody like Maimonides, so a very traditional, I mean, uh, you know, very traditional Jewish thinker. I mean, he's, I guess, controversial in some circles still, but I mean, very much a well-established figure because I did, because I think what happens a lot of times in much more sort of religious or orthodox Jewish circles is, you know, people like Levinas, they'll just, they'll dismiss altogether. Yeah. Because even if he has these Talmudic writings, you know, and even if he has, like you said, the, the sort of Lithuanian background and very traditional Talmud study, he's just not taken seriously in a way that I think somebody like Maimonides is. And it, it was important to me to have a, a sort of hangnail in, in that very traditional circle so that this book could, could at least circulate there and, and have some, I mean, realistically, I doubt, any of those folks are reading this book, but um, I know that you they could try. read it, right? <laughs> but I know that they could read it, and the Maimonides is the sort of entry point for them. Yeah, I really like that. That that. So I, I don't even know if it's a metaphor, but that just that image of uh, of adding dimensionality to it, because one of the things that the way you talked about it, one of the one of the things that does is allow you as an author to really be in control of the sources, right? Um, in the sense of the hermeneutic event, right? Of, you know, the text doesn't simply guide us, right? We bring something to the text and draw out of the text something very specific because of our approach to it, right? Um, and so you know, I wanted to ask you sort of how this hermeneutic, how you think this hermeneutic event works to draw out something unexpected about these thinkers. I mean, as I was reading, you know, I did think, um, you know, it just takes somebody like Adorno, who had his own kind of hostility towards phenomenology, um, or even maybe it's just a pessimism about phenomenology, which wouldn't make phenomenology unique on his itinerary as a writer. But um, you know, somebody like Adorno, or even what it means to bring phenomenology to bear on Maimonides, right? That 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 element of the hermeneutic event. You know, what do you think this this you know, worldhood and world and worldhood, awe and um, outrage. What do you think these draw out of these thinkers that we wouldn't see otherwise? Because that's the way theory works, right? Is to mm -hmm. let us see something that we wouldn't otherwise see. Yeah, um, I mean, I think uh, I think a, a lot. I mean, it, it's a, it's a tough question to almost get a grip on because for each thinker, it, it's something like a, a little bit different, but. Um, yeah, but I think maybe one way to, to sort of reframe your question, feel free to follow up if you feel like, uh, you know, I haven't fairly answered sort of what you're trying to get at, but, yeah. um, <laughs> reframe my, sense, like... <laughs> my, my sense somehow is that, um, or at least the way that I approach these sort of questions is, and this is something that I very much took from Cavell and also, uh, another sort of hero of mine in the way that he writes, not necessarily the way that he thinks or even the ideas that he comes up with is someone like Rorty also. I, I think there was always an honesty of invoking this this sort of first person voice of saying like, look, and uh -huh. I, I think this because of this and I'm, I'm wary about this and he, here are sort of my commitments. Yeah. And um, and I've always tried to, to, to write in that way. So, I mean, I, I'm very honest about why I'm invoking certain people at certain moments and, um, and of course, like, 
when you invoke someone in a particular context for a particular purpose in a particular moment, you're leaving out all sorts of stuff. Um, but I think those things are there to be mined by other people in interesting ways, I hope. And I think, again, if you've done your sort of due diligence as a scholar, both biologically with respect to the secondary literature, then the way that you've invoked the person, even if it's in a context that's quite different, um, will make enough sense to people who are intimately familiar with those figures that, again, they could mine it and, and, and use it for other things. But I have to say, as an author, it's not beyond that. I've never thought that much about sort of what's left out in the sense that I've always just been very honest about this is my project. This is why I'm using these figures. And, and, yeah. and here's what I'm doing. And I just don't want to get bogged down and sort of explaining like, oh, and this is left out and one could think about this differently. But obviously yeah. that's a hundred percent true. But again, I think like my inspiration there is very much Cavell. I mean, you know, this is totally different genre, but I was very struck like, you know, Cavell writes a book about Shakespeare and it's like, and, and it's on uh -huh. one hand, it's hilarious because he, he doesn't seriously invoke all of the, you know, you know, hundreds of years of Shakespeare scholarship. I mean, in any serious way, but it's a successful book. I mean, and it's sharp and it has interesting insights. And he's honest about it. He says, look, I'm, I'm mm -hmm. not here to sort of engage in these debates in Shakespeare scholarship. Like I'm not dismissing it, but it's not what I'm doing. What I'm doing is trying to tease out this sort of story about skepticism that I found here. I think it's interesting. Um, you know, maybe it'll be of interest to Shakespeare scholars. Maybe it won't. But let me present it, and you all do what you want with it. And um, uh -huh. and I thought it was so great. And he, and he did that, you know, several times. He did that with film, also. And it's something I, I've sort of very much also aspired to. I mean, with the TV book, and, and and here also in a certain way. So I think that you can have a sort of paralysis in academia because we've become so hyper specialized that there's this fear of, yeah. of of being seen as a dilettante in a way, and it's a fear that. Of course, I also have. I mean, anybody who's writing across these sort of genres yeah. has this fear. And I think, you know, anytime you approach the job market, it's it's another sort of whole story yeah. and, and process yeah. where um, it's very hard to, you know, even when you're writing like a research statement, like how, how exactly do I make these things fit together? But in my mind, they fit together quite well. I mean, they're all circulating around certain basic issues about what it means to be human. And I think in, in so many ways, that's what draws us to philosophy and draws us to academia in the first place. And, and that hyper-specialization sometimes leaves that behind. And then you sort of wonder, well, what are we doing exactly? And so uh -huh. I've always tried to be very honest about what I'm doing, why I'm doing it, and just do it to the best of my abilities and then let the chips fall where they fall after that. And I think that, you know, hermeneutic honesty, for lack of a better phrase, is... Um, I think it's absolutely critical. And I, I think your book is, is very clear on that. Um, and I think it's critical because it does forestall some of what can become petty concerns in reading a book. You know, I mean, I was reading the book and, you know, although I haven't written on him for, you know, seriously for a good, good number of years, you know, I have deep investments in some of the nuances and sort of politics of Levinas's work and have been working on Adorno and Benjamin in my own way. And so I have my own concerns with those thinkers. And so inevitably I read sort of looking for how you poke around those concerns. But I do think when, you know, what's interesting about, about, as you say, sort of that embrace of the first person or, um, you know, real clarity 
about what you're up to and how these frames draw something out and that it's really about your own approach, right? That how to measure a world is a question that is extremely delimiting in the best way, right? Because it is saying like, I'm not going to try to like rework some sort of scholarship on Maimonides in 32 pages or however long the chapter is, right? Um, and it, it diffuses those sort of petty concerns and allows the book to really blossom as its own kind of thinking. And so I think it's extremely successful. I would love more of that sort of ownership. And I struggle with that in my own writing, like the, those moments of how much footnoting and couching within traditions of scholarship and lines of debate do I want to do? How much is responsible and how much detracts from, from where, uh, where I want to go with my own thinking. Yeah, so no, absolutely. I like the it's way a, you did it in this book. Well, thank you. I mean, it's a, it's definitely, I, I would say as a writer, one of the most difficult questions for me, um, because I've always had this aspiration to write in a certain way, but it, it's hard. And, uh, and I think, you know, I think this is like books are the sort of last refuge in academia where you can still sort of do this because you, you can't get away with this sort of stuff in a journal article in the same way. Exactly. I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember uh, it was, uh, you know, if I could just sound like a self-help book for a minute, but the, one of the most empowering moments for me was submitting um, my uh, Glissant book manuscript. And the one of the reviews said, you know, this book needs to make a choice. Is it going to um, situate itself within this sort of emerging scholarship around francophone studies or is it going to be what it is which is more in the essayist tradition right i had to sort of think about maybe google a little bit what they meant in mind but had in mind but it was that you know this is an alternative for writing books and it really breaks out of so much of the, the pressure for those of us who were trained in sort of versions of great books at the graduate level of you know you can't talk about Levinas without talking about Heidegger, who you can't talk about without talking about Husserl, without talking about Nathor, Brentano, and so forth. And so I, I'm glad you you have broken with that while also doing real, as you say, like responsible philological work. These aren't these aren't um, contradictions. Yeah. yeah, and I think um, you know I, I I sort of I appreciate both. Like I, there's a lot of scholarship that I really appreciate that's different than oh, my absolutely. own. It's just I don't necessarily want to write it, but I love reading it. <laughs> Um, and I love learning from it. And I think it's just, a, it's a different way of, of doing things. But I think the things that have always gotten me the most exciting, uh, excited about philosophy have been things that that aren't doing it in the way that we're sort of taught to do it. It's, and I, I should say, I mean, I fortunately, like, wasn't taught to do it that way necessarily because the Humanity Center, you know, where I got my PhD was very different, but the way most of us, I think, are taught. But um yeah, I mean, if you think about the sort of like you think about like Rorty's, you know, contingency book or even philosophy in the mirror of nature. I mean, these are really weird books in many ways that are yeah. already out, far outside of the discipline of philosophy as traditionally conceived. Um, and so, yeah, I think uh, I mean, I sort of think there should be room to do things in lots of different ways. And I think that's that's absolutely that's one of the problems with, with a lot of contemporary sort of academic uh philosophy is we we look for ways to close off ways to do things differently and we were very suspicious about things and, and stuff like that and i think that's that's a problem i completely agree and you know just on that 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 
you know, closing off and opening up. I mean, how do you understand the scope of your book? And by scope, I mean both in terms of its possibilities and also in terms of some of its limits. Um, I'm just thinking about, obviously, it's a philosophy, you know, it, it works with philosophy and Judaism, right? But you also are explicitly linking it with two things that I think move, you know, in really decisive and exciting ways outside of any, um, I don't want to say narrowness, but, you know, focus, you know, hyper-focus on the Judaic tradition with this notion of monotheism and anachronism, right? So I'm curious how you think of your own, uh, think of the book's scope, you know, in terms of your aims and, and, and um, uh, in terms of its possibilities, but also in terms of some of its limitations. And I'm thinking specifically when you narrate it into the project, Right, you were talking about this grant and this, you know, three monotheistic traditions and two non-monotheistic traditions, and how would that work together? And you know, you don't have to necessarily talk about that, but it made me think about the scope question. Yeah, you know, where, where are possibilities and where are limits in the way you you go about the project? Right. Well, I think um, I think the best way to sort of answer this question is is. I, I might think about it as follows. And to me, it's everything again ties back to this sort of phenomenological point about world. And I think when we, when we hear, you know, Judaism and we hear monotheism, I think we tend to invoke a certain archive that has a lot to do with the way historically those practices have unfolded. And whether we're talking about, you know, in very plain language, like sort of ordinary understanding or even more scholarly ones where they, you know, precisely trace like the sources of monotheism to, you know, to Iran or whatever the case might be, or to, to Egypt or, um, but I think we tend to associate it with those sort of historical um, archives. But I think there's also, there's something like a philosophical or conceptual archive. And what I mean by that is I'm somehow convinced uh, after reading um just, just reading in this field, and I, I think one person that, that makes these sorts of arguments is Hent DeVries, and then another person is, is Elliot Wolfson in different ways. But if you look at just any particular religious tradition, it's not heterodox. I mean, institutionally, it's often claimed to be and it's asserted to be. Uh-huh. But it, even if you look at something like Judaism, right, you know, most lay people will say, oh, well, the, you know, Judaism you know, is completely averse to having an embodied Messiah, right? The God cannot be present in that sort of way. But uh-huh. that's not true. I mean, there, there are streams of Judaism where, like, I think it, it, people that are very familiar with, like, Chabad, sort of contemporary Chabad. Um, Judaism oftentimes sees, you know, this Rebbe that just died as as somebody who's coming back, and, and it begins to look a lot like Christianity looks. And so, I find that to be the case for all religious traditions. If you mine them forcefully enough, they all can seem to look just like all the other traditions. And so, uh, um, and what I mean by that is, again, at a relatively high altitude and not from the perspective of the lay practitioner or the, sure, you know, the sure. pulpit leader. But if you really look at the sources and you can push them far enough, then, um, you know, pantheism becomes a possibility for even the most monotheistic sort of religion and vice versa and, and so forth. And so the reason I mention all of that is I think that's one way to situate sort of world and anachronism that's that's sort of happening in this book. So I've used particular sources to tease that out, but I could imagine someone writing this with also very different sources because they're Mm -hmm. fundamentally sort of phenomenological points. Um, And I think that's where 
you know, it's just beyond my abilities to do that. I don't have the sure. same sort of, uh, you know, facility with so many different traditions. But, you know, if I was a, a better sort of scholar and could dedicate, you know, 20 years to a book, then like maybe <laughs> even look a little bit differently, but yeah. I just don't have the constitution for that. And, uh, um, but I think that that's sort of how I, I would I would try to think about what you're asking here. Yeah, no, I like that. And it just keeps coming back to, to, you know, what for me is, I mean, obviously I'm moved by this as a similar minded person, but I think it's also um, theoretically just true, which is, which is the incredible flexibility and adaptability of critical phenomenology to work across traditions to work across um, geographies and periods. And, you know, you do it in the book as part of why I wanted to ask about and just emphasize, if nothing else, you know, Maimonides to Cavell is a massive leap in sort of what, you know, the, the role of phenomenology in making that work is about the book. But I also think for me as a reader, it's a takeaway from the book of well, phenomenology is capable of these things. Here's a practice of it. Right. Yeah, Rather no, absolutely. A, a I agree declaration completely. of it. And I think this is a, a central through line and, and it's very, you know, phenomenology is important in this way. And it's, it's an amazing, I think, method. And I think maybe one figure that, you know, I invoke occasionally, but not as explicitly that that's also important here and relates to this question is Arendt and, and this whole idea of having a certain love for the world for her, I think is really a phenomenological notion that she develops in various ways um, because the world is the thing that has to be deep and saturated enough to allow for this sort of phenomenological analysis and, and procedure. Yeah. And, um, and I think that's also something that you find in so many different traditions in different ways and can, mm -hmm. can look uh, and be invoked in different. And I think in a way, this goes back to what you were saying about Du Bois and, um, mm -hmm. and so forth. Yeah. And so sort of along those lines and maybe in some ways you've, you've answered this, but just to, you know, re maybe recontextualize, um, you know, it's not, you alluded to this before, and it was not lost on me as a reader that this book is published in a moment of, you know, at this point, years long surge. I don't want to say, you know, reinvention or, or, you know, out of nowhere, obviously, but this real surge of anti-Semitism in, in the U S but also, uh, across Europe. Um, and, so it's connected to in its timing, but also in terms of its content, to this ongoing catastrophe of anti-Semitism, right? And in that way, all of the thinkers that you you write about are working inside a horizon of of catastrophe and loss, with different points of resonance, with different points of of connection. And so when I read the book, you know, as someone who works in a in a different field but also works inside of the horizons of catastrophic loss, right? Um, I wondered how you think what you reflect on in this book, you know, outrage and awe, world and worldhood, Judaism as an intellectual tradition might fit, right? As, a, as like a companion piece or parallel something, you know, however we want to think about it, to these other forms of racialized violence, you know, against you know, Central American immigrants, uh, Muslims since uh, September 11th, 2001, or, you know, black people in the Americas since the origins of the hemisphere or the U.S. in terms of the, the origins of the nation. You know, do, 
you know, is your intuition, and this is really a speculative invitation to speculation, but do you think that the, these call for very different kinds of analysis or is there space in your book to sort of draw lessons and orientations and frames that would be productive across what we might call sort of comparative catastrophe studies? Yeah, no, it's, it's a, it's a great question. I, um, and it's very perceptive. Uh, I mean, I think absolutely. So this is stuff that, um, there's a couple footnotes where I, where I reference the sort of things that you're talking about, but it's not something that I was able to pursue in any serious depth, except for the sort of, uh, little gloss in the conclusion where I, I also explicitly allude to Levinas's, you know, very famous preface to otherwise than being, um, where, you know, he talks about the anti-Semitism sort of that's been applied to all peoples. Um, uh, and uh, I think there's something, there's something right about that. So if you take seriously the idea that there's some, something phenomenological going on here, meaning that it's about the human condition in some way, um, then obviously uh, one has to be able to apply it to other settings and traditions. Um, but again, I think that requires some detail. Uh, so that, that, mm-hmm. It's not something I was able to do here, but I think it's it's very relevant and very apt. And in subsequent work, I mean, that's stuff that I've turned to explicitly. So I had an essay come out very recently that um, is an essay on anti-Blackness and anti-Semitism that revolves around Fanon, uh, Cedric Robinson, and Orkheimer and Adorno. And that really tries to think about um, how both of them uh, originate from a particular sort of uh, activity of and phenomenology of the state. So the modern sort of state concept is what gives yeah. rise to these. But I yeah. fundamentally see them as interconnected phenomena. I don't think that they are reducible to each other, um, meaning that I don't think you can just say, oh, anti-Semitism is the same thing as anti-Blackness mm-hmm. and, and vice versa. I think that's just false. But I think they're intimately connected and then it, it becomes a matter of figuring out how they're connected and in in many ways that's exactly what all of my subsequent work after this book has been is is really to look at the dark underbelly of these sort of connections so here i feel like i explored the potential connections um in sort of more positive tenor but i think uh you know this essay that i mentioned and then this genocide in the state book that i'm looking at um the book sort of opens with a moment where um you know so many of these initial racial categories are, are being invoked in the Iberian Peninsula with respect to the Jews and the Muslims originally. And then mm-hmm. once they discover the Americas, I'm speaking about Portugal and Spain especially, they begin to be invoked in this very different context in the Americas. But uh-huh. what people don't realize is it goes both ways. So it doesn't just stay there. Then they begin to travel back um, and then sure. they come over again and, and they're sort of circulating in this way. And so... Um, I think from the very beginning, like you said, from the discovery of the hemisphere, they're they're already sort of intertwined in certain ways. And then it's just a matter of figuring out, I think, sort of how these mechanisms work, how they're connected conceptually. So maybe not explicitly for the people that are wreaking havoc (laughs) on both ends, but how they sort of work in the background in almost Hegelian ways to animate this uh, form of life. And um, and that's essentially the the project of of this genocide in the state book that I'm tr- trying to sort of work out. That's great. I, yeah, that's super interesting. And you know, I think it goes to the 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 potency of this of this 
emphasis on world and worldhood. I mean, I, I'm thinking about a real emerging terminology, some of the emerging terminology in post-colonial studies around world-making, mm-hmm. which tends to be institutional because I think it's driven largely by political theory people. But as someone who works in the existential phenomenological sort of frame of analysis myself, right, that, uh, you know, and I've been using that phrase world making in my own particular way and sort of looking for ways to grow that notion. And your book really did that for me, right? Really thinking about world making not as just a political project, but insofar as it's a political project, it's rooted in the transformations of the human person, right? Across the Atlantic world, as you were just talking about, and transformation of, of you know, the way the transformation of institutions is supposed to transform form us as humans you know you mentioned phenom i mean that's the the whole point of the wretched of the earth is the development of new uh, of, of a post-colonial state right literally detached from colonial repetition and iteration but then he ends the book with a new humanism it's like we become different people right? I mean, in some ways it's sort of marx 101 right that we're made from the material conditions of our lives but here drawing that out phenomenologically but also, I think it's so important that you know that you draw it out, not in abstract terms, but in, and this is just one thread of the book, so I don't want to overemphasize it. But inside the the horizon of catastrophe, which I think is the hardest part to talk about that, and that's why I love the outrage and awe frame. Right? I just think like it's a reminder that you know in the in moments where people are victimized by the most outrageous violence, they're making worlds. And sometimes those worlds are terrifying and sometimes they're liberating and they're everything in between. Yeah, no, that's it's such a, that's such a great way of putting it, John. Um, and I think it, it's, you know, I think that's exactly right. And I think it's also another way to prioritize um, sort of doing inquiry in things that, again, sometimes we're hesitant to do. So things in the, you know, aesthetic objects, uh, you know, yeah. uh, whether we're talking about music or literature or film or TV or, or all of these sort of, uh, you know, aesthetic productions that, you know, as someone who who's worked in aesthetics and philosophy, I mean, it's it's, uh, you know, it's a very lively field. There, there are lots of great work. But when you sort of think about aesthetics in the context of philosophy more generally, I mean, it's, you know, there's so few like endowed aesthetics professorships and uh, you know, yeah. aesthetics jobs <laughs> are like few and far in between. And it's such a devalued sort of subfield in many ways, um, which is unfortunate because I Absolutely. think it's central to thinking about so many of these questions. I mean, look, you know, people, whether they're oppressed or oppressor, uh, make art, right? <laughs> right. They attempt, for to worse, make, exactly. they attempt to make beauty and that making of beauty is is making worlds and mm-hmm. it's making worlds of anti-semitism right you know it's the role of the aesthetic in nazi germany was massive yeah the yeah, role absolutely. of the aesthetic in the the justification of slavery and colonialism was massive but so was the resistance to all of that you right know? and so um you know we also you know i mentioned a surge of anti-semitism we live in an age of suddenly i feel like it kind of came out of nowhere for me in my own naivete but an age of book banning which is about the aesthetic and world making it's an attempt to block right. the way you know mouse could make mm-hmm. a world right right in a well, moment of anti-semitism it's amazing how the the sort of the ordinary person realizes the power of all of this in a way that i think we as academics mm-hmm. sometimes uh overlook i mean 
that's that's <laughs> you're right. Um, and I think I'm this gonna, also cuts to run students. That. That's a great <laughs> point. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it cuts for a student. Like one thing I've started doing, um, just because you know, I think before the program started, we were talking about pedagogy a little bit, but um, our students also are, are very cognizant of this, and I think uh, you know they have certain talents that it, it would be worthwhile for us to foster as, as professors as well, like in this area Absolutely. that. Um, you know, sometimes we we don't dismiss as like a serious intellectual endeavor when it when it really is. I mean, even within the field of sort of philosophy, or it can be seen as such. Absolutely agree. Uh, that's uh, you know everything from our, our classroom uh, conversation and conversations and examples to the way we think about epistemology and ontology. I mean, again, like world and worldhood is about forms of being and and forms of knowing. Right? Yeah, absolutely. but often drawn up and 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 the poetic power, right? The, the capacity to create is coming in that moment of of the aesthetic, like so deeply, um, in ways that are you know <laughs> the good guys and the bad guys practice this. It's not a <laughs> right. It's a that's the phenomenological neutrality. Is it's not about just about liberation. It's also about understanding how these 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 forms of violence have uh, roots in everyday life. And as you say, the common you know, your average everyday person maybe understands that better than philosophers, which is a dispiriting <laughs> comment, but I think you're absolutely right about that. Right. No, I mean, it's 100% some, true. And so in some ways, maybe we've we've gotten an answer to this, but just to, you know, gotten your response to this. But I want to ask anyway, you know, you write a book, it goes out into the world, it's published, and we have our own personal experiences of that. There's the vanity moment. There's the excitement that all that work is going to get read and thought about and uh, the anxiety about it getting read and thought about. And we can't ever control what a reader takes from a book. We can't ever control right, uh, uh, how a reader is changed or not changed by what we write. But at the same time, we write with elements of purpose or along those lines. I think in a non, there's a way to think about it, non-imperialist, right? It doesn't mean that we control the reader, but we have an aim for the reader to walk away with a certain kind of sensibility and they do with it what they want. But what do you think that sensibility is that you want readers to have as they walk away from reading your book? Yeah, that's a, that's a question. So look, uh, if I'm being honest, this is what I'm about to say is going to sound a little bit odd at first, um, but I think it's it's somehow, somehow true. <laughs> um, what I really wanted someone to walk away with was actually a, a sort of a contingent, but nonetheless essentialist picture of Judaism. In other words, I really want this to, to be a sort of way in which people can approach Judaism in a way that would allow them to unify sort of a large swath of disparate sources in the sort of archive of Judaism. Um, and I wanted to do that by, again, teasing out this phenomenological notion around anachronism. And so um, like, what would it mean if we took Judaism conceptually, fundamentally, as best represented by anachronism? Now, I'm not arrogant enough, or, or, or I don't even have a desire to claim that that's the only way that you can or you must take Judaism, but wow. I'm deeply invested in developing it as one way that you can understand Judaism. And um, and so that's what I would really love the reader to take away with. So the scholarly reader, I hope, can approach that and sort of see 
the way that constellation was put together and sort of decide what they think about that. But the sort of lay readers, so the, the rabbis and the ordinary sort of practitioners can hopefully phenomenologically understand sort of what I'm claiming and what that means then and see how that might apply just to the way that they practice, um, mm-hmm. you know, their Judaism, because, uh, you know, again, now speaking biographically, I, I find it somewhat off-putting when, when this sort of prophetic element of Judaism, for lack of a better word, so the sort of things that Heschel would invoke and that other people who, let's say, participated in things like the civil rights movement in this country. Um, uh-huh. it, it used to be a very dominant orientation of Judaism that it would be, you know, sort of anti-establishment doctrine. And that's a strong strand that's always been there, you know, from, uh-huh. from the very beginning. And, um, and that I find getting lost in a lot of contemporary uh, Jewish spaces in many ways. Um, hmm. And what I mean there is institutional sort of space. So I'm talking about sure. organized religion, um, because obviously there are a lot of, you know, very progressive and very sort of radical Jewish uh, organizations out there and causes <laughs> and people and so forth. But um, in the sort of institutional spaces, like what I mean by like when there's a lot of money being thrown around and behind uh-huh. it. Um, I think that that idea of Judaism as something that pushes back against the dominant culture sometimes gets lost. And, uh, and that's really what I wanted to, to interject back in. I like that. That's, that's I, I really like that, that way of thinking about the, you know, um, the focused effect on the book uh, of the book. Um, I think that's, that's clear, you know, and that, that, you know, I, I like that phrasing anti-establishment a push back against the social order. I, you know, we need more of that generally. And so I agree. this book articulating it is, uh, as, uh, you know, an, a really important contribution that way. And so let me turn that around to you. And this is a question, of course, I mean, you've mentioned, um, some book project you're working on, so maybe that's the direction you go, but, you know, I think it's easy to think about readers, not easy, but it's, you know, our default is to think about readers and what do they walk away with? But of course, anyone who's written a book knows that, you know, how you started the book as, as a person and as an intellectual, how you started writing the book and how you are as a person and intellectual, your sensibilities, your, your, you know, vision of the world is changed in that writing process and leaves you walking away from your own book in a way that readers also do, right? With altered sensibilities. And so, you know, as a final question, uh, you know, where do you walk away or how do you walk away from this book? You know, what are your sensibilities and how do they lead you to the question? How do those sensibilities lead you to the questions that you're currently asking? Yeah, no, it's a great question. So um, I think maybe the questions that I'm currently asking, um, I think uh, probably I've covered that already. I mean, in a way, I think it's it's natural to turn to to sort of the, the questions that I've described about this genocide in the state book. Um, yeah. But maybe biographically, I think, you know, as you asked this question, I found myself thinking about this because there are there are sort of other stakes involved in in sort of writing a book and sort of what happens after it that aren't purely intellectual or scholarly, but are somehow you know personal or biographic. Um, especially, at least for me, with a book like this, and I, I mean, I think you saw, you know, I, I dedicated it to my kids, and I somehow, I think, writing the book, if anything, like has has made me sort of become more um, committed to actualizing 
this sort of anti-establishment stance and in whatever spaces I find myself in, uh, I feel like I have an even stronger commitment to that exactly because that's something that I want my kids to inherit in a certain way. And, mm-hmm. and so much of Judaism for me has been associated with something like this familial practice and, 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 and sort of just my own experience. And I think, like I said, that book is somehow bound up with that personal history in many ways. Um, you know, in ways maybe that some scholars would find very problematic, but, but you know, I, I can't help it. Um, but so I think that's sort of the, the biographical element here. I like that. That's really, um, that's, I, I, that is a wonderful way for your book to, to transform, um, your own sensibilities. And I like that, the intimacy of that impact. I appreciate you, uh, reflecting on that because I do think we tend to talk about our books always in terms of the scholarly world. And we don't talk about our books in terms of, of the intimacy of those, those, transformations or even just a, a renewal of a certain kind of commitment so i really appreciate that yeah. and i really appreciate you taking all this time to talk about your book it's it's a fantastic book as i said it's really well written and um really provocative and opens up so many horizons for people who work on the edges of this um, i think it's really productive for all of our thinking and um For those of us who also are concerned about Judaism and philosophy, uh, it's a really unique and powerful contribution. So thank you for the book and thank you for the time. I really appreciate it. Oh, well, thanks so much, John. This was really lovely. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate all the questions. Really sharp. Really gave me a lot to think about. Very nice. Yeah, me too. All right. Well, you take care. You too. All right. Bye-bye.